רגע, לפני שמתחילים, אם אתם יכולים, בבקשה, דרגו אותנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם. זה מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה של הערוץ ליותר אנשים. ממש תודה רבה לכם. פתיח ומתחילים. If you love to watch TED talk videos, I know you know my guest today. His name is Dan Pink. Uh, he is a New York Times bestseller, and his TED talk, The Puzzle of Motivation, is one of the most ever-watched TED talks. Among his books, one can find A Whole New Mind, which is a great book about right and left brain, Drive, The, whole, uh, the Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us, To Sell Is Human, And the other two is when the scientific with secret of perfect timing and the power of regret. And uh, I have read all of those books and they are excellent. Uh, another thing that he has a great short podcast, which he times in second, which names Pincast. His latest book is about regret, <laughs> but you will not regret watching this conversation. Hi, and welcome to my <laughs> channel. My name is Roy Yosevich, and in this channel, I host and converse with the most interesting and influential people from all around the world, discussing science, philosophy, theology, artificial intelligence, and even more. If you like this show, please consider subscribing, hit the bell button, and be part of this great community. Hi, Dan. Thank you so much for coming. How are you today? I'm good, Roy. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. It is truly my pleasure. In fact, I was so inspired from your book that in my first book, uh, Rosh Gadol, I mentioned the candle problem, the same candle problems that you speak about in your famous TED Talk. So again, this is a, a, another opportunity to say thank you. Have you ever been in Israel? I have never been to Israel. It's shocking. I've been to many countries around the world, but I've never been to Israel. It's shocking to me. Yet. Yet. You haven't been in Israel yet. Yet. I will yes. be there at some point, I'm sure. You know, recently, uh, Arthur Benjamin, the mathematician, went to Israel to a conference about magic and math. And he, mm -hmm. I, had the, I had the privilege of hosting him in my studio. And he stayed for Shabbat oh. dinner. So the next time you are in Israel, please... I will host you and uh, treat you very, very nice. So, okay, right, let's I start. Accept. Thank you. In your uh, 2009 TED Talk, you say, and I quote, when I got to law school, I didn't do very well, to put it mildly. In fact, I graduated in the part of the, my uh, law school class that made the top 90% possible, end quote. And my question is, I have read your book, and this is like the work of a genius. And I want to ask you, <laughs> <laughs> like 14 years later, how do you understand the term genius? And if you may, if I may, what happened in law school? <laughs> okay, so, so let, me, let, let me take, so I don't know if I do understand the word genius. I don't think most people are geniuses, but I'm certain... I am 100% certain that, that that term does not apply to me, 100% certain, not even close. As for what happened in law school, that's an interesting, I think that's a more interesting question. I think it's a question about how we decide what we do, how we find our path in life. And, um, and this was, that was a path that essentially, I didn't necessarily find myself, but that was in some ways found for me. And I was kind of going through the motions. I was doing what I thought I was supposed to do. Rather than really stop and evaluating you know what I wanted to do with my life I, I think that's a common issue for a lot of uh, I think that's a common issue for a lot of young people but I do think that at any stage of our lives we need to really scrutinize you know who am I what am I good at and where can I make my biggest contribution and this is exactly what I want to ask you because I think that you are not good but excellent in articulating hey, very sophisticated subject and making them accessible to the public and I can see you know the same trait with Malcolm Gladwell and other great uh, uh, 
popular science book that you take a very big subject and you articulate it in a way that say, wow, this is exactly what I thought, but I never had the words. And I think it, I, 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 okay, if you don't want to call it genius, okay, but it's a very rare attribute or it's a very rare feature that, that we have as human beings. Would you agree? Somewhat, yes, yes, yes. And it is what I try to do. And I really appreciate your, I really do appreciate your saying that. Uh, that is that is what I try to do. Um, I have to say that that's, that's a product of an enormous amount of work. That's not a product of any kind of special ability, truly. I think it's a, it's a product of just showing up and doing the work. And once again, you know, the older I get, and the more we figure out just the more we the more i figure out life i think the more people in general figure out life that uh, that quality show up do the work show up the next day do the work show up the next day do the work that's a pretty good strategy yes it's like i i think i i don't i i don't know who was it but the more i train the luckier i get i think it, it was a sure sure I sure remember but also the other the reason i think the reason that is an effective strategy show up do the work 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 over and over again is that most people don't do that because showing up and doing the work is a pain many days it's not fun many days it's terrible but you have to show up. So showing up and doing the work, I think, is there's no there's no there's no replacement for that. As um, hackneyed as that might sound, um, as as kind of like sort of American, you can do it philosophy that might sound. I really do think that that is the case. And the reason that's the case is that most people don't do it. They'll show up one day in a row, two days in a row, but they're not going to show up 100 days in a row or 1000 days in a row. Okay, now this is inappropriate for uh, this part of the conversation because we are just like five minutes into the conversation by, let me disagree, okay? Please let me disagree. Go. Because we have, and you know that we have the concept of the notion of deliberate practice. And the deliberate practice yeah. is you can show up and do the work, but practice makes permanent. Deliberate practice makes perfect. And deliberate practice is something that is profoundly different than showing up and do the work. If showing up and do the work was like the ultimate strategy, you know, old people would be much more successful than young, people, than young people. Old chefs would be much more successful than young chefs. But there is something profoundly different. If you know how to get criticized, if you know how to alter your behavior, your route, your decisions based on the past, if you know how to repeat uh, the, the, the weak spots, then you get to be like the world expert. Would you agree? Yeah, I don't think we're that, actually, I agree with you. I don't think we're actually that far apart uh, in that the idea is that, that, that my notion of, of doing the work is not simply doing the same thing over and over again in an easy way but doing what is urgent at that moment to move a project forward and to get better yourself. And the thing about deliberate practice and the thing about doing the work is that most days it's not fun. It's not enjoyable. It's a pain. And, and so, and so I actually think that we're saying something. I actually think that we're very, very, very close together. We're just using slightly different terminology for it. Okay. This is great. Now, when I uh, hear your lectures or hear your interviews, it seems like that you were, were born with a whole new mind. But <laughs> it's, it's not the case because no. you, yes, because you have another book, which is, a, a, it's called Free Agent Nation. And can I say that the subtitle of the book, and let me just uh, remove m- myself, yes? that the idea of transforming the way that you that we live paved the way to the other books and this is like the common thread in your entire walk that you want to transforming the way that we live maybe i mean i'm not sure there is a common thread it's an interesting question right uh you know i think that there sometimes will seem to be a common thread 
when I think it's like life again. Again, I don't I don't mean to be too philosophical here, but you mentioned, <clears throat> you know, you mentioned that you talk in your podcast about science and philosophy and theology. So I'm kind of st- leaning in that direction a little bit. I mean, I think that I mean for, ultra for, orthodox for, then. <laughs> for, <laughs> for books, for books, for books in general, and maybe my books in particular. They sometimes make sense only in retrospect. They don't necessarily there wasn't a kind of a grand plan to try to carry out a long-term strategy. And I think that's sometimes true in life also. We make decisions or indecisions or actions or inactions, and they lead us in a particular place. And it wasn't like there's an enormous amount of deliberation or strategizing in that moment. And they only, sometimes make sense have a coherence to them looking backward and i think that's the case for for my books i do not have i mean i mean you're 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 looking at this is my office here in washington dc believe me there is no map no grand strategy out there for <laughs> doing this then that then that then that and each book is an actually going the to lead, lead to the another world. one yeah 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 no there's not that's not that's not it at all i just i i work on whatever i think that i'm so deeply it goes back to what we were talking about before i pick something that i'm so deeply interested that i'm willing to do the work to do the deliberate practice to commit myself to something that is arduous and that takes a long time and most ideas don't pass that threshold for you For me, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I so, mean, other people, so, yeah, for other people, okay. sure, yeah. No, no, no. So it has, maybe I should write a book about this and maybe I should write a book about that. No, it's not that, in, it's not, it's not that interesting. So I need to invest so much time. I need to be Absolutely. mesmerized. I need to be hooked by, by the subject. Mesmerized is a really good word. I like that word, mesmerized, hooked, that kind of thing, right? There are, I mean, I have a lot of ideas for books I don't want to write him because writing a book is a pain in the neck and I don't, you know, and it takes a really long time and most days aren't fun. So I, I only want to, I only want to write a, I only, you have to pick a topic that you really, 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 really deeply interested in, in because you're going to devote yourself in that moment. You're going to spend an enormous amount of time. And again, as this conversation exemplifies, you're going to end up talking about things Five years later, 10 years later, free agent nation, 20 years later. You know, I'm totally happy to talk about free agent nation 20 years later. Um, but, you know, there's a so there's just a small group of things that you become mesmer to use your word mesmerized by. And that and that and that and being mesmerized is is something that occurs over a long stretch of time. But most things are not mesmerizing, just like most people are not mesmerizing. <laughs> You know, I speak with many scholars, and I don't know if this is like an Israeli attribute, but when I speak with an Israeli scholar who wrote a very famous book and say, "Okay, let's discuss this book and say, "Listen, I wrote this book ten years ago from i I moved on i I'm not into this book anymore. I have new research, I have new new interest i I don't want to dig into this cemetery again and again and again and uh, This is very strange because you know you said that you can speak about a free agent nation for for the life for the I next think that the two, I, here's the thing yes. here's the thing I'll give you I'll give you my reaction to that okay. um I, I I that my reaction to that attitude is that it is um deeply uh, um uh, egocentric um that that it suggests that conversations are all about you. Um, not about other people. And so if there are other people who want to talk about something that I worked on years ago and it's new to them, I'm totally fine on that. Now, that said, Roy, I don't want to spend 20 years talking about free agent nation and nothing else. So it's possible <laughs> to do the two things. You can move on and develop other ideas, but if somebody... brings to you the curiosity and simply the generosity of wanting to know about something you did even if it was a few years ago that's something to welcome that's something to cherish it's not something to reject definitely and you and you raise a very good point you know the egocentric view 
instead of, no, 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 you want to view my participants, I want to view my viewers, I want to view the entire society. And this is, and this is, I think, is much better view. Okay, now from there, I don't want to mention this. This is a great book. Uh, to sell is human. My wife had to explain me that it's to air is human. So now I understand the title of the book. I want to mention, I want to elaborate just on one concept. Kavet Emperor instead uh, uh, versus Kavet Venditor. In the old times, the buyer had to be afraid, have to be cautious because the seller, the venditor, had all the information. But nowadays with Zap, with Amazon, we as buyers, we have all the information. We know exactly how much the car agencies charge or get for this specific car. And now things have, have turned tremendously. Now you wrote this book approximately like, I don't know, seven years ago. Yeah. What have changed since you wrote this book in the context of Cavet Imperator versus Cavet Venditor? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's 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 a good question, and just to just to uh, double click a little bit on the on the idea itself. So the argument there is that we that most one reason people don't like sales they 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 bristle at it, particularly smart people, is that uh, almost everything we know about sales has come from a world of information asymmetry where the seller always had more information than the buyer, okay? So, uh, and that was true of almost all commerce for all time, that the seller had more information than the buyer, the buyer um, didn't have many choices, and the buyer did not have many ways to talk back. This is why I'll switch, I'll switch you know, out of the Latin, this is why we have the principle of buyer beware, because buyers were at such an information disadvantage. And what has happened, and it's pretty remarkable, is that in the last 15 years or so, that information asymmetry has started to disappear, and we're now at something closer to information parity, where sellers have lots of information, as you suggest, often as much as the buyer, lots of choices, and this is often gets overlooked, all kinds of ways to talk back. So, uh, and to me, that's not a world of seller beware, that's, a, that's not a world of buyer beware, that's a world of seller beware. Now, have things changed markedly in the last, um, uh, in the last, seven years or eight years since I wrote that book. A little, um, not, so I think we're moving even closer to information parity. I think what's happened is that bad actors have taken that world of information parity and actually polluted it with bad information. Um, and you see that oh, often in our political nice. system, in our, in our political system. And so, so it is, it's a little less, and I, and I think I use the word, pollute very carefully it's so there's a sort of pristineness to information parity but when you you know we had there's a, a political leader here you know who has this view that the base i mean a political leader it's like the guy steve bannon talks about you know am i allowed to swear on your show yes yes definitely okay so he talks about he talks about his this i'm, I'm quoting i'm not swearing myself i'm quoting somebody who swore he talks about flooding the zone with shit and and like that's that's the way to sort of what you want to do is you want to flood the zone with shit and that's going to get people uncertain. So there's a lot of, so there's more flooding the zone with shit than I would have imagined. That's true in politics. It's less true if you're going to go, I mean, it's, it's less true if you need to like go buy a stapler or, yes. you, you know, you need to go, in the you need to go buy a notebook or even, yes. or even going to buy a car. But on certain, in certain realms, there is a flooding the zone with shit that, that is disturbing. Now, another very life, changing perspective that you present in this book is that, that we as educators, we as teachers, and as medical people, as, as MD, as doctors, as nurses, we yeah. sell because the definition of sell, I want you to give up something to get something better. I want you to give up your time to get education. I want you to give up cigarettes to get health. And this concept that we as teachers and educators and medical people, we are we are seller. This is a, a, a true mind-blowing. Could you please elaborate on, on what does it mean in the context of education? Because I consider myself as a as a salesman. Yeah. Uh, so I mean you put it, I, I mean, I don't know how to put it any better than you just did. 
Um, I mean, I think you did. You can put it with your great American accent. (laughs) This is basically what what you can do. Okay, great. So that's one thing I have down is my American accent, my 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 American newscaster flat accent here. So so, you know, let me take a step back though on this. One of the things that you see, and this is actually really important. One of the things that you see is that. especially I think it's true around the world it's probably true in Israel certainly true in the U.S. is that when you look at people's job descriptions and then you look at what they actually do all day at work there's often a, a gap and when you look at the ground truth of what people do all day at work no matter what they do whether they have the word sales in their job title um or whether they have the word selling in their job description, a lot of what they're doing is selling and persuading and convincing and cajoling. Now, we're gonna, I'll come back to education here in a moment. But if you just think about just a typical boss, think about a boss in a, in a ball bearing company. That boss is trying to get her employees to do something different or do something in a different way. That's selling, right? You, you're an employee at that ball bearing company. Maybe you're trying to get your boss to stop doing something stupid. You're selling all the time. Um, and so in, 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 in an amazing amount of, uh, of work today, there's an element of sales, a huge element of sales persuasion and influence. Now, in the two professions that you mentioned before, or the two industries you mentioned before, education and healthcare, that's an enormous amount of what it is. I mean, if you think about, you know, edu- you, you put it very well. What's edu- edu- What I'm trying to do as an educator is I'm trying to get you to... Um, do something different or do something in a different way to give up a measure of your leisure time to instead spend it studying, to abandon a one belief and replace it with what I think is a more accurate belief. Um, healthcare, you are this absolutely trying abandon to change people's one behavior. Yeah. And, and, and what you see in the United States workforce is that if you look at the job growth in the United States workforce, I mean, I don't want to say it's all in education and healthcare, but a huge port. It's a, it's by far that what I like to call EdMed is the is by far the yeah. fastest growing part of the of the U.S. of the U.S. workforce. And you know, I always tell my students, I I'm a faculty member at the computer science department in a real in a real university, and I tell my student the fact that you just you know finished your project, your your software is insufficient because you need to sell the concept. You need to sell the ideas that you need more time. You need more resources. You need to change. You need to change the, the uh, I don't know, the roadmap of the product itself. And you need to present your idea. And the idea is that we, we don't, we don't teach it because we teach engineers and we teach computer scientists. And the idea of what you do extremely, extremely well, the articulation of your thoughts into words that convey is a, it, it's so rare. It's so rare that we are, basically we all are lousy salesmen. What can we do about it? We can, well, we can do two things. Number one, we can look squarely in the eye the fact that we, this is a big part of what all of us do. Uh, and get past this kind of elite notion that, that that's somehow dirty, that that is lowbrow, that that's not worthy. I think that's BS. I mean, I think that's nonsense. Um, so that's, I think that's one thing. The other thing is we, we can help people learn some of these skills. Um, you know, we can we can have those computer, those computer, those young computer scientists, you know, part of maybe, you know, as part of their education, help them do presentations more effectively, help them draw up a business plan, uh, you know, help them. Um, not only not only create the piece of software, but go out and try to sell it somewhere, uh, and just give people some and just give people some of these skills. I, they're going to have to learn them anyway, so you know we should incorporate it a little bit more into our education. That doesn't mean we want to have like sales training courses for 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 third graders, but what it means is that the ability to to articulate as you say to to articulate a position to explain why it matters to try to convince people and try to get them to act in a different way is fundamental to what human beings do it's essential to what we do in the workforce and 
all of us can do it reasonably well. We just have to, you know, we just have to learn how to do that. And, and I think one of the big things that you're talking about is this kind of segmentation, where it's like, well, if I'm a computer scientist, I don't sell. Selling is done over here. And computer scientists do this. If I'm a physician, I don't do anything like that. I just do this. And that's not how it works. There's there's much greater fluidity, much greater elasticity in, in what people do. People have to be, especially today, people have to be much more um, multi-talented, multicultural, multi, you know, where they can, multilingual, multidisciplinary. They have to have some breadth to them rather than simply that, rather than that depth. Depth is extremely important, but depth without breadth leaves you ill-equipped to really contribute to the world. And when you say, I am not selling, basically what you're saying is, I'm not communicating. I'm not Good communicating point. with other people. But also I'll, 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 I'll up the stakes here a little bit for those, for, those, um, for those computer scientists. I feel the same way about books, okay? So it's to think about it. So, so there are authors out there who will say, I wrote the book, that's enough. I'm not gonna go sell it. It's a good book, people should come to it. And I think that's just, I think that's nonsense. In fact, I think, it, I, I think that if you create something that you believe the world needs, you have a duty to go out and talk about it that you are that you are actually betraying a duty a moral duty to the world if you create something that you believe in and you don't take the extra step to tell people about it and try to convince people that it's great are you familiar I think with that's, the... a, I think that's a cop-out yes I think it's a, yes, I think it's a I think it's a cop-out I think you have a duty yes are you familiar with the concept of Chabad you know the Jewish or the ultra Jewish Orthodox you know that light the candle And it, it's like the closest to missionaries that we as Jewish people have. But again, right. if you believe, and I think it is much easier to sell when you believe your product is good. If you believe your product, let's say Judaism or like the Torah is good, you will convince much more. And if you can't convince, maybe you are not, you are not absolutely sure that your product, that you know, that your education, That your program is good first convince yourself then it will be much easier to convince others I I mean I I, I agree despite you know despite you know despite Judaism's sort of resistance to even evangelizing you know that so 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 but but moving 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 yes. out of the realm of religion into the into the realm of, of everything else you Again, I think that you I, first of all, I think you're absolutely right that 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 if that you're not going to sell something well if you don't truly believe in it. Um, you're not going to sell something well in in an enduring way if you don't actually believe in it. But my view is that if you do believe in it, believe creating something and believing in it is necessary but not sufficient. You need to take that extra step and and go out there and try to and try to convince other people. I think you have a duty to that. I don't understand why someone would write a book, Or write a computer a piece of software and think that the job is done and not want to go out and get out the other people to read it or use it like like that to me that's in some ways that's a betrayal of showing up and doing the work that's part of the work yeah I couldn't agree more I wrote for books so I know exactly what you're talking about let's move to when which is the Again, a great book, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. And in your Google talk, like I think five years ago, in 2018, you say, I made a lot of decisions, but it was, I, I searched for a system. And when I searched for a system, I searched for a book that will tell me what the system is. And I didn't found any. And then I went to Google Scholar and I found a lot of research. I said, wow. No one ever thought of like writing a popular science book about what is like the best timing to make decisions. So wow. So there was so much to ask about it, but could you please elaborate on the concept of the hidden pattern of the day? It's like chapter one of the book. Yeah. What, are, yeah. what are the so- hidden patterns of the day? Well, um, what, what we know, and again, this is this is, I think if I'll take another step back, I think this is the there there are downsides to being a generalist and there are plus sides to being a de- generalist. I think that the the good part about being a general generalist is that you're not wedded to a single discipline. You're not 
you don't think about. And, and so what happened in this case, as you put very well, is that there was a lot of research on timing, on when to do things, but it was spread across maybe 20 different disciplines. And and as, and the people in those each of those disciplines, we're not talking to people in the other disciplines. So the people doing research on timing with regard to medicine, we're not talking about people examining timing with regard to social psychology, who were not talking to people who were doing timing with regard to cognitive science, even though they were asking some very, very similar questions. And among those things is, is basically is this. Uh, well, I'll give you the punchline. What we know from, again, a multidisciplinary set of body of research is that all times of day are not created equal. There are fundamentally different, there are fundamental differences in our time, in, in time of day. In particular, this is the, the most important thing. We presume that our brain power remains constant over the course of a day. That is not true. Our brain power changes over the course of the day. It changes in ways that are predictable too. There are patterns to this. And, and, and once we crack the code on that, we, we can, we can understand that hidden pattern. It's basically this, it's, it's, it's somewhat complicated because it depends on your own, what's called a chronotype, chronotype. Is, you know, do you wake up? Yeah. Do you wake up early and go to sleep early? Do you wake up late and go to sleep later? Or you're somewhere in between. And essentially what, what the research tells us is that about 80% of us go through the day in this order, peak trough recovery, peak early in the day. Trough in the middle of the day, recovery later in the day. During our what peak, do you mean by trough? I, 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 what do you mean by trough? Because I think I didn't understand the word. What does the, uh, the it, word uh, mean? Uh, it, it's, a dip. It, it, uh, it's like uh, the bare minimum. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a, it's um, it's a, it's a, it's a dip. It's a, okay. It's a, it's a hole. It's a. Okay. Yeah. It's it's easier to it's easier to draw. A trough is. <laughs> okay. So, for instance, like in, like in, like 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 in English, sometimes you see the word trough with regard to animals in a farm. They eat out of a trough, which is like a low dish. Oh, okay. With a with a with a with a bottom in it that you're that they're eating out of. So it's just a dip. And now okay, we learn so, the new world. So it's not that common of a word, but I, I kind of like it. The so the peak is you should so stick with the mesmerize. Peak, I like mesmerize too. <laughs> okay. During the during the during the peak, that's when we're most vigilant. Vigilance means we're able to bat away distractions. So so during the peak, so during the peak, that's when we're able to. That's when we're best off doing what's called analytic work, which is work that requires heads down, focus, attention. Uh, it could be things like writing, like writing something significant. It could be things like crunching numbers, figuring out a strategy, whatever. Don't check your right? emails during, that... during this period of time. Amen. <laughs> Amen. I mean, that, that, I mean, if there's one, if there's, <laughs> but I mean, listen, if, if, if people have been listening this far and the only thing they get out of it is don't check your email during the peak period, that's a win for everybody. So during that trough, that dip, um, um, that's 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 the worst time of day. We're not very sharp. We're not very creative. There, we should be doing more of our administrative work. And then finally, during our um, uh, during the recovery, which is later in the day for most of us, that's when um, our vigilance is not as high, but our mood is is higher. And so that's good for kind of creative work. What's called insight work. Now, that's true for eighty percent of us. Twenty percent of us have a have an evening chronotype meaning that we just naturally wake up late and go to sleep late and for those people it's much more complicated but they hit their peak much 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 later at night you know seven o'clock at night eight o'clock at night nine o'clock at night ten o'clock at night you know 11 o'clock at night someone like me is asleep do you have other two people at 11 o'clock there is like the most famous magician in the world and he practice every day at two o'clock at night because he figure out that this is like the best peak hours two o'clock at night Great. fantastic so he's probably not surprisingly with him as a magician and an entertainer he has an evening he has an evening chronotype yes. and so and so that's it and so we should be we should be just a little bit more intentional about a little bit more intentional about about when we do things um I'll give you an example from today. I'll give you an example from today. There's a so so I'm talking to you actually. This is a good example here. So so I'm talking to you. It is it is two thirty in the afternoon where I am now. Ordinarily, I wouldn't do this interview at this time of day, but I had a long doctor's appointment today, 
And I intentionally scheduled it in the morning because I want that doctor to be vigilant. I want to hit that doctor at his very best time. So I, so I essentially sacrificed my morning, my peak, so that I could be in the doctor's peak because that was more that was more important. So as a consequence, today I could only do this at this at this time of day. But to, but but recognizing recognizing that this was a suboptimal time of day for me before this interview, I had a cup of coffee and I actually took a short walk around the block in order to kind of restore that mental energy. Now you are in the hall or you are just moving up. Please tell me you're in the hall now. I'm I am moving up, but okay. but but I was but here's the thing. if you're intentional about it, you can you can do you can you can do you can do something. One of the best things that we can do, Is regularly and systematically take breaks particularly breaks where we're moving where we're outside um, and so this is why recognizing that I had this interview with you at a time of day because of other reasons was not at the optimal time for me um I made sure that I was intentional about how I approached it I see your sweatshirt so you I think that you joke. Now, this resonant with your book Drive, because one of the key elements for the science of new motivation is we have autonomy uh, 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 we have autonomy, excellence, and mastery in English and yeah. we, at, 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 autonomy, mastery and and purpose. And purpose. Now, purpose. in autonomy, in autonomy, we have exactly this. You need to do the thing the way you want to do it. And I ask my students, what chronotypes are you? Are you a, 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 a late a, a, a late waker or an early waker? Do you learn better with, uh, with peers or alone? Do you learn with music or no? And usually, maybe Juan Tamariz and maybe you, because you studied this, But most of but most of my students and most of the peoples don't know what what type or what chronotype they are and they know know almost nothing about the peak in the day so how can I know if I'm a evening chronotype or a morning chronotype okay so there's there are there are two very good scientifically validated instruments out there there's something called the Munich chronotype questionnaire the MCTQ there's also something called the morning eveningness questionnaire the meq you can go online and, and find those things and you get a pretty good sense of it you can also do a very simple um sort of back of the envelope if you understand if that makes expression makes sense back of the envelope way where you take I could do it with you right now if you wanted to figure out your okay chronic, yes get a good guess on your chronic okay so I want you Roy to think about a what's called what chronobiologists chronobiologists are scientists who who study our diurnal patterns, who study these, these, these um, uh, 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 rhythms of wakefulness and sleepiness and so forth. Uh, so they, they describe something called a free day, okay? A free day. A free day is a day when you don't have to wake up to an alarm clock. You don't have to wake up to do something. You can wake up and go to sleep when you want. And you're not trying to catch up on sleep. You're not exhausted and trying to catch up on sleep. So think of it as like you're going off on a vacation, you're on a holiday, and you can wake up whenever you want and go to sleep whenever you want. So on that kind of day, on a free day, what time would you typically go to sleep? Uh, 1 a.m. Okay. I think 1 a.m. or maybe 2 a.m. Okay. So in what time would you typically wake up? 9 10 okay so let's say that so this is good let's say that you um let, let's let's say that we, we can do either one let's take the two and the um and the nine let's well, yeah you're, you're you're sort of on the border here so based on this so so let's say we take the 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 two, let's say we take well we'll split the difference let's say we take 130 and the What did you say 930 okay. okay okay so 130 and 930 so what we're trying to do here is what we're trying to find here is the midpoint of sleep the midpoint of sleep and so if you're so your midpoint of sleep if you go to sleep at 130 and wake up at uh 930 your midpoint of sleep would be approximately 530 yes 530 okay okay so this is interesting here so here's what here's what it tells us again you If your midpoint of sleep is before 3:30 you're a morning person you are not a morning person my friend all right if your midpoint of sleep is after 
5.30 p.m., you're probably an evening person. And if it's in between, you're 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 in between. So you are someone you're you're either a full fledged what's what's known as like a, an owl, um, uh, a full fledged night person, or very very close to a night person. Does that make sense to you? Yes, but now I have two very important questions. I want to confront you with yeah. what uh, with, with what we say in Israel. It's called reality, okay? And reality. Uh-huh. Now th- there is one reality. As an Orthodox, you need to get up to shul. And you can't get up to shul at 9 or 10. You need to get up to shul max at 7.30. So this is one. But let's say that you are not getting up to shul, but you have kids. Let's say that you are late, that you are an evening chronotype, but you have kids. And your kids does, don't care if you are evening. If you're, you need to get up in the morning, each morning, every morning to the kindergarten, to school, etc. And if you have It seems like that if you have kids and you are an evening person, your ability to produce creative work diminished tremendously. That might be agree? the case. I, I don't know if I fully agree, but I would entertain that I would entertain that it's a possibility, truly. And I'll tell you why. One of the things that you see, I'll give you I'll give you an example of this. One of the things that you see is that you see among teachers, right? People with evening chronotypes, with late chronotypes, don't last as teachers. Why? Because of reality, because they have to be there at um, they have they have to be there very early. And so as a consequence, we might be losing some very good teachers because of because of that rule. Now, with kids, it's a different story because you love your kids and you have an obligation, you have an obligation to care for them. So maybe there are ways to maybe there are some small ways around that period in their life when the kids need you to be there all the time. Um, so it could be that maybe you and your spouse trade off if that's possible or or something like that. But I think you make I think you make a good point. And, and I think you make a very good point, especially for the owls, the people with evening chronotypes. Most of our world is designed for the eighty percent of people who are like me, who are much more morning than than evening. But the people who are this twenty percent of the population, the world is not designed for them. Uh, and now, when it comes to family, That's a di- I think there's a different stake there. Taking care of your kids, I think, is in a different category than doing your job well. But when it comes to doing your job well, there is a very strong argument to be made that the companies should be changing, not the individuals. That the companies should be saying, you do your job whenever is best for you as long as you produce good work. And there's some evidence, uh, there was some, some interesting piece of research done in Germany where among manufacturing workers uh, at, a, at an auto plant where they they allowed the they matched instead of saying you have this shift you have that shift they matched the shift to the chronotype productivity went up attrition went down absenteeism went down so it's like now I'll give you something OWE it's like results only well it's similar Yeah, yeah, it's similar. It's similar, although in a, you know, in a, in a, in a factory, you do have to be physically present for certain kinds of, you know, cer- cer- certain kinds of things. Now, um, the, um, I forgot what I was going to say. The, um, forgive me here. Um, You're in your toft right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, so no, the, when you um oh yeah yeah so so this is this is a this is a big issue for this is a big issue for for organizations because here's the thing that we know okay so let me let me show you the distribution here about 15 of us are very strong morning people okay about 20 of us are very strong evening people and about two-thirds of us are in the middle but the two-thirds of us in the middle are people like me who kind of tilt more toward the early part okay so that's why I think of it To oversimplify 80% one way, 20% the other way. But let me tell you what we know about that 20%. First of all, that 20% more likely to be criminals, more likely to be drug addicts, more likely to have mental health problems, all right? People like you, all right, in, the, in, the, in that 20% <laughs> evening type. But, but here's what we also know. They test higher on intelligence tests. They test higher on tests of creativity. And so The way that we've configured our world is actually systematically disadvantaging some of the people who are actually the potentially highest contributors. And so it's worth it's worth thinking about, even if we can't rearchitect our entire family lives, even if we can't you know completely reinvent our religious practices, 
In the area where we have a little bit more give, which is the configuration of workplaces, we can do a lot to accommodate that 20%. So I will tell you two things. One, if you want to, if you are a, a evening chronotype, you could daven very early in the morning and think maybe, you know, the ancient said, listen, you could pray at 5 a.m., okay? So don't let this chronotype mess with you. I want you, it's like God say, I want your creative work, okay? I will... I will manage myself according to your to your chronotype. And two, in Israel, I think the ITech industry is much easier or is much more flexible because we work with the US. So you could start work at 10 a.m, 11 a.m. Yeah. but then later yeah. on I want yeah. you to, to work with right. the US. Right. If you're in Israel working in the US and and you're in now, it actually is actually pretty good. Because you have okay. whatever it is, if you're working on the, what is it, a seven, seven hour difference between the U.S. East Coast and Israel? So, yes, now it's, that about right? 10, yeah. now it's 10 p.m. Okay, so, okay, so it's eight hours. Um, so, you know, that's, that's, that, 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 that's pretty good. But the more important thing here is that it's something that we should be thinking about. And, the, and, and it all, it has to do with being deliberate. It has to do with being intentional. We are very intentional about what we do. We're intentional often about how we do it who we do it with, but when it comes to when we do things, we are not intentional. We think it doesn't matter. And it matters. It matters a lot. It matters much more than we much more than we realize. And what's even more important than that is that this is an area where you can get some you can get some big gains for very, very little for for very, very small cost. This is great. Big gain for low score because how to do things, you need to change everything. But when to do things, this is minor changes. This is great. Okay, we, I think that we need to go uh, move on to your latest book, The Power of Regret. We don't have uh, much, uh, much more time, but I have, I think, very important questions. Now, uh, The Power of Regret, If please correct me if I want, but this is the first book that you actually did field research. This is not like Google Scholar. This is the uh, the first book with your actual your field research. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, is I mean, it true? In, in my other in my other books, I did a lot of reporting. That is, I interviewed a lot of people. But and in Cell as Human, I did one small study that was pretty good, but not amazing. Here, I did two pieces of re- two very large pieces of research. One of them was a uh, a very large public opinion survey of the U.S. population about American attitudes on regret, a very good piece of survey research. And then I also did another piece of research where I collected regrets from people all over the world. We now have a database at this point, as I'm talking to you, a database of over 24,000 regrets from people in 110 countries. And my question is, in the meta, not what did you learn about regret, in the meta, what did you learn from the process? Or if you want, let me put it differently. Do you now trust more or less scientific results after conducting the research yourself? Um, I trust it's a great question. I think Thank what you. I do is I trust people who are I trust people who are transparent about how they go about their research and who show their work and who are and who, offer nuanced conclusions rather than definitive, I'm 100% right conclusions. You, you know, I had Danny Kahneman on the show and we spoke about, uh, among other, the replication crisis in the humanities, yeah. in, the show, in the social science, in psychology in general. And it seems like the, it, there is something inherently bad when you present results or with our scientific community, if I want to replicate an, an experiment, this is not science because the experiment was already conducted. And when you do an experiment and the line and the correlation doesn't fit exactly like we wanted in, in theory, it's not like this. You have like, what do you do? And this is what we always uh, obsessed with as scientists. But when we present the results, and when we and when I read, because I'm also a popular science writer, when we when I present the results, I present like a simplified. I think that we as scientists mostly present a simplified version of the reality. Would you agree? 
now because you crossed yeah. the line. You read yes. Google Scholar yes. and you yes. did the research yourself. I think you have to, here's the way, okay, so we talked a little bit about law school. Here's where my legal training has some worth. I'll show you this as oh, a way to analogize. Great. Okay. So I don't know how it works in the Israeli justice system, but in the American justice system, here's how it works. If you are a prosecutor, that is, you are the state. And let's say that you've been, let's say I'm a, I am the prosecutor and you have been accused of a crime, right? And, and, and a serious crime where the punishment is, say, maybe putting you in, putting you in jail. Okay. If I am the prosecutor, that is, I'm the state, I have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you are guilty, all right? If I, if the jury simply says, oh, he probably did it, that's not enough for a criminal prosecution, all right? It has to be beyond, it's a very high burden of proof for a criminal prosecution, all right? In a civil prosecution, in a, in a, in a civil case, not a civil prosecution, where I'm simply suing you because it's like, oh my God, uh, Roy, uh, he um, he he got in his car and he ran over my my front lawn and destroyed some plants. Um, all right, there it's simply the preponderance of the evidence. Okay, so think about that. So so we we can think of one is like ninety nine percent sure and one you know more than fifty percent sure. All right. And we apply different standards in different circumstances. So in a criminal prosecution, it's that 99% standard beyond a reasonable doubt. That's what I think academics do and should do. But when you're presenting the when you're presenting evidence and making arguments in a public domain, that's too high of a standard. You're never going to get there. Uh, and so what I think you need to do is you need to say preponderance. I think the standard is preponderance of evidence. Are you are you more right than wrong? Uh, and are you significantly more right than wrong? And I think that smart readers will say, okay, this is probably more right than wrong, but I'm not going to take this anything that someone like me or anybody else writes as as something as like the law of gravity. You know, um, it's basically a line of thinking that is probably right, more right than wrong, but isn't as airtight as the law of gravity or Newton's second law of thermodynamics or any of that. Do you... Thing. They're different. They're different standards. Different burdens. Definitely, because we have science and humanities. But do you think that the humanities can reach to the level of accuracy of the science? Do you think that any truth coming from the humanities, no matter what, can have like the uh, the strength of the second law of thermodynamics? No, every 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 law in the humanities is an aggregate law. Usually, most of the times, can you give me one law that you know, no matter what, in what, no matter in what scenario? No, we don't have such laws in the humanities. Regret is a great trait. It works all the time. I don't know. Yeah, no, I see what you're. I, I see what you're saying. I think it's. I think it depends on what it depends on what you're calling humanities. Um, it really does. So if you say if you say that if you say that um, that 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 if if we can if we can do an analysis of all of Shakespeare's plays, we put them we we do a, a quantitative analysis of all of Shakespeare's plays, and and we make and I think we can make a pretty safe claim. It, it, let, let's say that Shakespeare. Um, um, never uses i'm making this up i have no idea mm -hmm. shakespeare never uses a uh shakespeare has a has a 4 to 1 ratio of intransitive to transitive verbs in his work i think we can say that with a great degree of certainty yes but now what what does it mean what does it mean okay yes okay what does it mean this is great you can say but then you but then you put on the meaning of how you see the situation. And this is like, oh, okay, I think, okay. You can say the same thing. You can say that you, you can say, you can say the same thing. You can say the same thing in, um, in, um, uh, in, 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 in Kahneman. If you say that, that, that people are apt to, we can say that people are, people systematically are apt to confirm their own biases rather than challenge their own biases. Okay. Confirmation bias. We say that's, that's, that's true. That's uh, okay. We can say that, but you also have to ask, what does that mean? 
Definitely. And this is why that's no science too, you know? And 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 this is why no one saw the Great Depression like 10 hours before, and no one saw that uh uh the 2008 right. uh, collapse 10 hours ago. This is exactly why. Yes, definitely. Economy exactly. Economy is not physics, definitely, because economy is the, it's not the psychology of of one person. It is a psychology of entire population. And this is much more challenging. Absolutely. Okay? Now, uh, there is a, a great book by Tolstoy, The Death of Ivan Illich, which basically say that on yes. the deathbed, everyone know how they should have lived their life. Okay, and I will just give you a, a, a very simple Steve Jobs quote from his autobiography. I wanted my kids to know me. I wasn't always there for them, and I wanted them to know why and understand what I did. Isaacson, his biographer, went on and asked if he was glad that he had kids. And Jobs said it was 10,000 times better than anything I have ever done. Now, mm. I have read Steve Jobs' biography. And this sentence didn't materialize into the biography. You can't see this great sentence 10,000 times better. You can't see it in the pages of his great biography. So maybe regret is basically what we perceive is something that you only can, like we say at the beginning of our conversation, look in retrospect. Because again, Job said it, but he didn't act like this in any way. Well, I mean, there are two different things. So regret is an emotion and it happens retrospectively. I mean, it happens when we travel back in time and wish we had done something different or not done something or done something in it, done something in it, done something in a different way. Now, it's also possible for us to anticipate our regrets, but the emotion itself comes from looking backward, uh, realizing we, we did something stupid or didn't do something and then feeling bad about it now. What we do about that is another story altogether, you know, and so so what you do with so you regret is an incredibly common emotion, but what we do with it, whether we enlist it to work smarter and live better is up to us. Now, I I have several more questions, but uh, you, I promise that one hour, can I have? Can I ask you a few more questions or you need to Yeah, go? yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to, I just, I'm just, uh, um, I just sent a text to somebody. I have a three o'clock, but um, I can give you like five more minutes. Um, okay. I just told him I needed five more minutes. This is great. Okay. So first, your book about regret, I, I think it, it on, I had Barry Schwartz on, on the show and he spoke yeah. about, you know, pro practical wisdom and the practical wisdom is to know what to do in the right sit sit situation, but also to exactly. want to do the right thing. It's not just about intelligence, it also has moral values. And I think regret, Absolutely. but but you have four pillars of regret. We have foundation, boldness, moral, and love. And just one of them has to do with like the moral regret. We have just like moral regret. Can I, what can I extend from your book? What can I extract or get from your book if I don't subscribe to any uh, to any moral values, okay, I don't care. But I, I don't. I'm not sure. I, under, I don't. I'm not sure. Just so let me let me take a step back and explain what I'm talking about. So the four regrets that you're talking about, those are not my. Those are not prescriptive things that I'm recommending. This is based on what twenty four now twenty four thousand people have told me about what they regret. They regret choices about. Um, not uh, making stupid decisions in the short term that accumulate to bad consequences in the long term, not saving enough money, not taking care of their health. They regret not acting boldly in any realm of their life. They regret not doing the right thing and they regret not connecting with others. Um, but I mean, who do you know who, who subscribes to no moral beliefs? Let me put it differently. Okay, you're, you're absolutely right. Regret means that the there was an alternative, better way to live your life. It was, and the idea is that human being has a way which is profoundly better to live their life than other ways. Would, would you say that... Regret isn't so much about different ways of living your life. It's about making different decisions at a different moment in your life. 
So it's about saying I shouldn't I should not have I should not have married if if only I had married Bob instead of Edward, my life would be different. If only I had lived in um, Tel Aviv rather than Toronto, my life would be different. And what can I say? It's, and yes, yes, please. It's about it's about particular it's about particular decisions or indecisions in our life that when we look back on them, they make us feel bad. And the thing about this emotion, which is an incredibly common emotion, this is extremely important. It is one of the most common emotions that human beings have. It's probably the most common negative emotion that human beings have. It is ubiquitous in the human experience. Everybody experiences regret. And this is kind of it, it is it is it's peculiar because regret makes us feel bad, right? Regret makes us feel bad. And so why do you have this thing so widespread that makes us feel worse? And the answer is because it's useful if we treat it right. If we treat it right. And if we treat it right, it can clarify what we value and instruct us on how to do better. And what it clarifies what we value is we value things other than moral behavior. We do value moral behavior, but we value things like love. We value things like growth. We value things like stability. And so it clarifies what we value. And if we treat it right, when we look backward, look at a decision, feel bad about the decision, we can learn from it and make a better decision in the future. You know, there is a, a common wisdom that we, say in, that we say in Israel that, again, on the deathbed, people usually regret more on the things that they didn't do rather on Absolutely. the things they did do. But it, the we opposite have a lot of... But this is the opposite of what if, with what they say. People regret more things that they say rather than things that they didn't say. It, Think that there is like a, a a profound difference between doing and say do more speak less and do the things that you will want to do I, I think I might agree with half of that based on my read of the evidence I definitely agree that the regrets of in this is I saw this in my own research it's it's true in the existing research regrets of action versus inaction not even close people regret what they didn't do much more than what they did and In terms of what they say and what they oh. didn't say I'm not so sure about that that could be an Israeli thing uh you know uh, what, <laughs> what, what I what I what 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 I what I see is a lot of regrets out there in my database of if only I had told my friend how much she meant to me before she died if only I had said to my um my 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 son how much I loved him if only I had told somebody what I really thought Um, so, uh, so, so I don't know if I necessarily agree with the, the regrets about, say, about, about saying things, uh, one of the, and, and one of the reasons why you, one of the reasons why action regrets and are less common than inaction regrets is that action regrets are easier to resolve. If I, in, let's say that I insulted you, it's like, oh man, I so regret insulting this nice guy who's interviewing me. What I can do is I can apologize. I can make amends. I can do something. But if I don't tell somebody I care about that I care about them and then they I, and then they die, I can't do anything about that. That's what haunts us. What haunts us over time is what we didn't do. And I would argue things we didn't say because we can make amends for things we did say. Definitely. Dan Pink, one of my most favorite authors in the world. First, thank you so hey, thank much you. for your time. It was, I, I won't say mesmerizing again, but it was... Like thought provocating and and you 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 have so you are full of great ideas, ideas that you can hey, you know, take, implement, put into put in in inside your pocket and change your life. And I think that what you did and what you said about uh, your book when, you can gain so much by changing so little. This is great. Uh, I think that's true. I think that's true I think that's true but I don't think I'll end on this I think it's true for a lot of things in life right I I really do I think that you know we sometimes um we sometimes underestimate the importance of taking small steps and getting small wins and a lot of times when you look at how big change occurs in ourselves and our in our family and our world it often commences with a few people doing one small thing in their own realm to make things different mm-hmm. and then that ends up having a ripple and a cascade effect so Um, I want so me I do I, small I, things do small things 
I won't mention atomic habits, but I will mention that people overestimate what they can achieve in one year, but they underestimate what can what they can achieve in five years. And I think I, this I is exactly the same. Dan Pink. I agree with that. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed great. this spirit and robust conversation. And polite for an Israeli. And polite for me. So <laughs> okay. we're trying. We're trying. We're trying. See, we barely we barely interrupted each other. And, you know, these are and this is a conversation between two interrupters. It's it's amazing that either one of us got a word in. Too Jewish. We need we need three three opinions. Next time you are you are in Israel, please give me a call. I will. Okay. okay. Thank you for having me. Bye bye. Take- אם הגעתם עד לכאן, מגיע לכם כל הכבוד. אז תנו לי להגיד לכם שלושה דברים קצרים. הדבר הראשון, אם שמעתם משהו בשיחה שמעניין אתכם, שאתם רוצים לקחת הלאה, פשוט ספרו אותו לאנשים אחרים. משהו מעניין שאני אמרתי, משהו מעניין שהאורח שלי אמר, איזשהו רעיון שאתם רוצים לקחת אתכם לחיים, פשוט ספרו אותו לחבר או לחברה. זאת הדרך הטובה ביותר לזכור את הרעיונות מתוך השיחות האלה. הדבר השני, אם אתם רוצים לקחת חלק בקהילה שלנו ולפגוש ולדבר עם אנשים כמוכם, אתם מוזמנים לערוץ הטלגרם שלנו, שווה לכם מאוד. פשוט תראו עוד אנשים שמתעניינים מדברים מגניבים בדיוק כמוכם. והדבר האחרון, אם אתם יכולים, דרגו את הערוץ שלנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם, זה יכול להיות בספוטיפיי, באפל פודקאסט או בגוגל פודקאסט, זה תהליך קצר של שתי שניות, הוא מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה הלאה. שיהיה לכם כיף גדול וכיף בשיחה הבאה. Yeah.